from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday, December 11th. I hope you had a safe weekend. We've got a fantastic show for you today. Safe. So many storms over the weekend. There was loss of life in Tennessee. I want to pray for those families and everyone else who's having trouble during the holiday season. I was actually in Tennessee at the end of last week. I went to an incredible Dale Carnegie class. I'll tell you about that after I tell you about the show. First up, today we have Michael Pushkar, he is with an artificial intelligence company that's making games better. Fascinating conversation. And for all you gamers, you will absolutely love this. For the rest of you entrepreneurs, it's an amazing build story you will enjoy. After that, Andre Martin is with us. We're going to talk about the wrong fit, the right fit, some great HR issues, culture issues satisfaction. Andre will teach you quite a bit and I think you will enjoy that. So last week I took a Dale Carnegie class. I implore you as entrepreneurs to do everything you can to continue your education. Sometimes as entrepreneurs, we work at home and don't get exposed to enough people and we need to sharpen our arrows, so to speak. This Dale Carnegie class was fantastic. I've taken two of their classes. I took their presentation class, oh, maybe eight, 10 years ago, something like that. And then this time I took their three-day introductory seminar that dealt with self-discipline and stress and self-confidence and learning to influence people and being a leader, the whole spectrum of sort of the greatest hits of Dale Carnegie's books, you know, how to win friends and influence people. It was amazing. The curriculum was amazing. My teacher was amazing. I want to shout out to Andy Dunn, absolutely fantastic instructor. The location that I took was one of their franchises, the Chattanooga franchise. I'm sorry. Yeah. Nashville, maybe Chattanooga or not Atlanta and Orlando by Alan Walker part of the Dale Carnegie system. Take a class, people, or do something to make yourself better as an entrepreneur. Like listen to the rest of our show, which we will continue in just a second with Michael Pushkar. School for Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage. From concepts to exit, Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us. I am very excited for my first guest today. We've had a lot of AI guests, and 
no game guest. And so uh, this is, I guess, seasonally appropriate. We're going to talk about using artificial intelligence to make gaming better. Please welcome Michael Pushkar to the show. He is the founder behind NPCX. You can find that company at npcx.ai. What they do is they take the characters in video games, in particular, I think the the non-player character, so like the innkeeper that you talk to or the animal that you kill or whatever, make those more realistic using artificial intelligence. He has three patents, and I think more importantly and even cooler than that, three exits uh, that you know, having started a business and then gotten out of it by a a financially profitable way, patents are cool, exits are cooler. Michael, welcome to the show. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Really an honor to be with you. So, did I describe it correctly, Michael? The the innkeeper is more realistic because it is is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. For years, since the 80s, we've always called it AI, right? We've always said, wow, this AI is terrible in this video game. The truth is, they were never really AIs. They're big decision trees, if-then-else loops, complicated sort of if-this-then-that. It's only until now, with sort of the, the advent of technology that is related to, to transformer neural networks and things like that, that we've been able to actually create true artificial intelligence, making that innkeeper actually not just hold a conversation with you, but just move and act in ways you would expect an NPC to act, just like a human would. Like they scratch every once in a while for no particular reason. Yeah, I mean, even more than that, just um, how they move. Think about a character, if you're playing Call of Duty and you're running towards a wall, right? The character has this sort of repetitive motion and then you hit the wall and then while you're against the wall, your arms and your legs are still moving, right? That's not what a human would do. As a human's approaching the wall, they would bend their knee a little bit. They'd throw their hands up because they're going to hit a wall, right? <laughs> and so it's the whole, the whole package and it just makes video games much more interesting to play because... What would happen typically is you would buy a game, you'd play it for three weeks, the human brain outsmarts an if-then-else loop within about three weeks, and then you're bored, right? So now sort of, it's like you're playing against another person. All right. Fascinating. And what are some of the games that you are influencing? Some, who are the, some of the customers that you're allowed to talk about? Well, uh, I mean, it's all different types of games, right? So it can be strategy games, but it can also be things like 3D shooters. There's really three principal sort of products that and, and, and components that we're after. The first is something called motion capture. So motion capture is how we create characters in video games, also in animated film movies like Panda Express or Superman or, or, or things like that, Avatar movies most recently. So what we're doing is right now there's a manual cleanup process around, you know, doing that. We're having artificial intelligence take that over and, and basically do what used to take eight hours and 10 minutes and doing it, at, you know, a third of the cost. But then there's the character movement. As I was talking about, you have these characters who are on stage. I don't know if your audience is aware of how characters and video games get created, but basically it's this process called motion capture where there's a, a real stage and they hire real world actors and they put them in suits and they have them. These suits have sensors and they move around and they do things and you're sort of tracking all those sensors. And then someone maps those into the video game. Well, now with AI, um, we actually track how they move, climb a ladder, fire a gun, dunk a basketball. And then we model how they move now based on how a human moves rather than that, that kind of repetitive movement. So that's the second thing. And then the third is making them intelligent, having them actually act. And, and by the way, 
like you said, the innkeeper example, it doesn't have to be the big boss at the end of the level. It could be the barista serving you a coffee. What you want is, whether it's in a video game or it's the metaverse, you want a realistic environment where you feel immersed, where you feel like you're not surrounded by robots. You're surrounded by people, right? Yes, exactly. And so, Michael, you would then charge a video game X amount of dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, for example, I'm just pulling that out of the air to make, to do what for them to run their characters through your package and return them more realistic care. What would exactly happen? All right. So taking off my video game enthusiast and, uh, you know, technologist hat and putting on my, my entrepreneur hat here. So you want to keep the business model as to, you know, in such that it's, it's familiar to the video game studio. So, so really it's something they're used to the way they're used to paying for it now is by character second. Um, and so that right now, if you wanted to, for example, create a character in a video game, it used to be that would cost $20 per character second, $15 per character second. Then it started becoming an industry that was outsourced. So you would have people doing it in Bangladesh or India, get it down to $4 per character second. I mean, I mean, it's really tedious work, Jim. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, really people get carpal tunnel syndrome, just sitting there eight hours a day, you know, adjusting points to make a character come to life. It's especially if it's like a wrestling game where people are kind of points are on top of each other. You're not sure which one it, it per- pertains to. So what we do is with AI, our internal costs, um, get in trouble for saying this, but they're under a dollar a character second. I mean, with artificial intelligence. And, and by the way, this is a really common AI uh, business model, you know, like uh, this, whether it's fraud detection or, or whatever it is in AI, taking something that's manual and tedious, making it done automatic faster with higher precision. So we're just doing that in video games. So now we just say, hey, look, you're already paying per character second for these groups in India. Pay us, we'll charge you a dollar per character second. And the rest, of course, is our, uh, is our margin. All right. And where did the technology come from? Michael, I know you have three patents and the three exits. How does that play into the tech piece here? You're the CEO too, aren't you? I am. And you know what? I founded eight companies. As you said, I've taken three fully through to exit. A very hard thing to do. So to go back and CTO, you would say, well, Michael, you're taking a step back. But it's really interesting. The group of founders we have at NP6 is just unbelievable. You know, uh, one of my co-founders, he was one of the guys who actually worked with James Cameron uh, on the Avatar films, doing the underwater scenes and such. And the, and the other is our CEO, um, Cameron Madani. He's really an expert in the video game. So it's really nice when you're a technologist at heart and you can say, you know what? I don't have to run this company. I can sit back and do what I love and, and be a technologist. And um, I've been working in AI for 25 years, 30 years. And what's really cool is that we can finally do it. You know, some of these things that, that are happening now, we kind of, we've known how to do them for a while. You look at some of my patents, I had like 2,000. But the problem is we didn't have the computing power. And now, of course, with cloud computing, we have almost infinite computing power, right? And we didn't have the data because AI, at the end of the day, is all about training. Um, and just two quick things that happened there. One, of course, is you have an explosion in data, including things like you wouldn't expect, like video or, or motion capture data. But the other is... Uh, it's a big topic now. It's called synthetic data. The AI, the ability for AI to actually create its own training data, which is sort of a new paradigm. And, and if your audience is telling what's going on with QSTAR and OpenAI, it's that whole paradigm. Uh, you brought up something uh, that made me think about the chat GPT situation, Michael. Do you know the inside story, what's been going on there? Can you explain to us? 
you know anything about that at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm someone who's a technology enthusiast, and I've been following it closely. I have some contacts, but I'm not really deeply embedded, so I can only some of it is uh, fact, some of it's kind of rumor. But uh, what happened was, it, it looks like uh, OpenAI stumbled upon a great discovery, and that was communicated up. And I think Sam decided that he was going to blaze forward with that discovery. Now, remember, OpenAI is a weird animal because it's sort of a profit nonprofit the way the sort of the board was set up it's not set up like a board that you or i would be traditionally kind of acquainted with and in this particular case they were very concerned about ethics and by the way you know one of the things that we do at npcx is we're cloning people um that innkeeper you're talking about we're doing that by taking someone watching them play a video game for hours and hours on end and then taking that and actually cloning something into the game. Well, there's all kinds of ethical concerns around that. And, you know, at NPCX, we're trying to be the ethical AI company, trying to concern about it. Well, OpenAI was just, let's blaze forward. And the board had a had a responsibility to, to sort of, say, put the brakes on. And that's what happened. I think they saw some discovery. There's a few rumors around there and, and about what it was. It's, it's this Q-Star. And, uh, but actually what it does, I think we have a pretty good idea of what that is. And we could talk about that if you'd like to. Yeah, what is Q-Star? Okay, so Qstar is, is sort of a, a, a breakthrough in AI, and it's taking us to something called AGI, right? It's, it's artificial general intelligence, and it's sort of the next paradigm in AI. It's where, you know, how can I say it for the audience? I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the step before artificial superintelligence, ASI. So it comes with a lot of power, and it comes with a lot of perils. So I think... And, and part of it is the synthetic data I talked about, the ability to be able to create your own data and train on it. But if you think about it, how do AIs work right now? Well, we have to train them. So I have to sit down. I have to come up with all the training data. I have to run it through. And then, you know, what comes out of the other end is something it's trained to do, whether it's detect fraud or, you know, detect a dog or, or whatever it is. So with QSTAR, if you can get an AI to create its own training data and if the other part of it is if you can have an AI teach another AI, in other words, with reinforcement learning, what we do is if you want to teach a computer, um, a machine, an AI to detect a dog, you give it 10,000 photos of dogs and 10,000 photos of something else. You say, dog, not a dog. Dog, not a dog, right? But a human's doing that. So this paradigm change is now the AI can do it. So if the AI can do it, then suddenly it can teach itself. So we can learn at a much greater speed. So that's kind of one of the, the things that's that are the step that happens in Terminator when it destroys us all, Michael. <laughs> well, you know what? Sometimes uh, life models science fiction, and uh, they certainly seem to be going that way. I mean, it's 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 both as someone who works in this industry, um, and I also am an investor, so I'm investing in these companies. I see what I get pitched, and you know, it's both fascinating and a little bit scary. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I wish you would. No, okay. So <laughs> fascinating. And thank you for the, uh, inside uh, scoop there. Let's go back though, to NPCX. Yeah. So how many customers would you have then? I don't, I don't want you to tell us anything that's none of our business, but I would, I would guess you only have 10 customers or something. And maybe they have you in five or six different products each or something. Is that how am I doing? 
Yeah, so we're a startup. We uh, received our seed round funding only in May, but we've been working obviously on our first product called Tracker X for the last year. We launched it in March. So we launched in March. Now we already have somewhere around that many customers. And, uh, and they're customers, they're companies that you would know. Unfortunately, you can't, a lot of these folks, they don't want us to necessarily, right. you know, I announce. Yeah. I have to be careful about that. And especially as the CTO, I got to be careful of CEO slapping around. <laughs> but um, the truth is. Companies uh, that we've heard of if we're gamers. Yeah. And, and they're not all video game studios. Some of them are movie studios as well, because part of what we're doing is working in animated film. So, because that's part of motion capture as well. So, so yeah, and, and so we're generating revenue. And then we brought in, as I said, a seed round from a company called Kakao Investments. It's, it's like the Google of South Korea, I guess. We're really privileged to have them as, as our first sort of uh, multi-million dollar investor. And uh, we're going to fill out that round and hopefully blaze forward from there. I mean, our products that come after this are the Behavioral X product. That's the one where we can clone real world people and put them into the metaverse. You think about it, if you go into the metaverse and nobody's there, it isn't much fun. So our idea is let's populate it with AIs, people, and again, not just, you know, the, the girl in the red dress. I'm talking about the person who's serving you coffee. If you go into the world, our goal is realism. In other words, not being able to tell the difference between whether you're talking to an AI or talking to a person in the metaverse or in a video game. And uh, we're really close. Uh, I love that. Yeah, because what's cool about that is you could populate it with the people I want you to populate my metaverse with, you know? Yeah. Let me give you a great example, okay? So Please. you and I are supposed to, we're going to play some game tonight, Call of Duty. So I'm psyched. We're getting ready to play. And then you call me like, man, you know what? My wife made dinner plans. I can't get out of it. I'm like, ah, but you promised we were going to play. I'm sorry, Michael, I can't. Shoot. Well, how about if I play with your clone? So that's the idea. So we're creating a clone marketplace. And it's really meant for esports gamers, but really anyone could create their clone. What we do is we observe you playing a game for a long period of time. It's a technique called behavioral cloning and uh, uses adversarial networks. And what we do is we, we take that clone, we put it in that game. Now that character is going to then move and play in every way, just like you would have. And it creates sort of a new economy because it allows for esports e gamers to be able to put their clones up there and rent them out. That also creates some ethical issues, which we have to navigate through, as I mentioned before. Uh, but that's our North Star, and that's the product we, we're, we're going to be you know, launching in hopefully soon, and then in the next year and, year and a half. Absolutely fascinating. That's unbelievable. The idea that you could play against some of the, you know, the superstars and they were not really playing. It's just their clone or something like that. Did you see the, yeah. do you remember the Michael Keaton movie? I think it's called reciprocity or something like that, where he is replicated himself and turns into he has like three or four versions of himself you remember that mood did you know what i'm talking about no no but but yeah that's what we're talking about have you fooled around with even uh llama and meta's uh ai that's out there where you can literally uh, have a sports conversation with tom brady now no i it's, haven't uh, tell me about that oh you haven't okay yeah it's really interesting so uh meta using their again on the you know, a API 
they created um, 25 AI personalities and they based them off of real world people. And they paid these people anywhere from one to five million dollars each for their rights. Got them into the studio, took all kinds of, you know, video capture of them. So if you go on now, you can see a video by Tom Brady or by uh, Kendall Jenner, for example. She'll talk to you about whatever you'd like to talk about. But, you know, it's not her. It's in her AI personality. And uh, you could do chat. And then there's a video component, which they haven't released it yet, but they've shot, they've shown like video of it. And it's unbelievable. I mean, it's indistinguishable from a real world person. So that's kind of where we're going. And in fact, the, the, the strike that was happening in Hollywood, the Screen Actors Guild, I guess, one of the things that was holding up getting that signed was the movie studios were trying to force the actors into signing away their digital rights. They wanted to get digital representation of them because think about it. What do I need the actor for after I have the digital representation? I can make them do whatever I want on film. So that's, it's, it's just amazing to me, even as someone who works in the field, that we got here so quick, right? I mean, it's just, you know, unbelievable, but this is where we are. The joke there, Michael, would be about, can I get someone to talk to my wife for me so that I don't have to? <laughs> and the movie is Multiplicity, where Michael okay. Keaton is a scientist and he figures out how to clone himself so that he can be in two places at once, as we've all wished. And the funny part of it, though, Michael, is that each time Michael Keaton clones himself, he gets 90%. And oh. so he gets dumber and dumber and dumber each time. And it's a really clever movie. You should check it out because of the world you're in. Um, I think you well, would enjoy it I'll again. It's multiple. I'll tell you what, there's parallels here. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're not doing a, di obviously you're doing a digital clone here. And the big use that people are talking about, which is a little bit frightening to me is, uh, bringing back folks that might have passed and you know, things like that. that. That's the kind of thing where you get, it gets a little bit sort of creepy, but you know, does it help from a psychological pers perspective? But the truth is to train one of these clones, it's very difficult. If you think about it, it's like when you're, uh, you have an iPhone and you're trying to do the facial recognition, it makes you turn your face to the right, turn your face to the left. What we make our players do is go through a whole bunch of scenarios because you need a completely well-rounded version. And it's really hard to get to hundred percent, very, very difficult. So if you can only get to 95%, then there is that sort of 5% out there that's, you know, going to vary a little bit from your personality. The goal, of course, is just to get to 99.99% if you can. And so is your ultimate goal to be acquired? Is this a, uh, when you start a business now, Michael, do you plan all the way through exit before you even start the business? Do you already have a buyer in mind? Well, that's interesting. And of course, we've already got people kicking the tires uh, around it because of the, you know, the type of technology that we have. But the thing is, I do. Uh, I believe in life that you really shouldn't do anything more than three to five years. That's always been my motto. I start companies and I build them up as fast and as big as I can get them. And where I am in three to five years, usually they're going to sell. But th this one, I think, is a little bit different because this one's a, a game changer. This is a potential billion dollar company. Uh, you know, I've, I've been blessed with a lot of success, a lot of failures. We don't talk about those, though, right? <laughs> but I think, you know, just in, in terms of, of NPCX, we want to make sure we're, we, if when we do eventually are acquired, if that's the path we take, that we're selling to an ethical company because it's powerful technology, people who uh, really are going to follow our values and uh, do the right thing with this tech because there's a lot of ways it could be misused. I've already seen the movie. Yeah. I've seen the movie. <laughs> Haven't we all? And it, this is interesting. We were sitting around over, uh, you know, the holidays here, I think Thanksgiving, and 
Terminator was one of the movies we had our 12 year old watch so he could get up to speed on, you know, the movie history. You need to have seen Terminator, uh, as an adult these days and know what the references are. And so uh, we just watched it the other day. One of my all time favorite movies, I have to say, I saw it when I was in the fifth grade and, uh, some of us, you know, who came out of that genre in our eighties, we, we think about it, I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm 51. You know, I was came out of university right when the internet boom was happening. My background, you know, in terms of being a kid and sci- sci-fi is star Wars, Terminator, that genre. I, you'd be lying if you didn't say some of those things influence, you know, some of the things. I mean, no, we're not trying to build Skynet here. Someone else might be, by the way, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm not, but there's just, uh, you know, those things do affect you culturally. Um, and I do really think that sometimes, Fiction imitates reality, and reality imitates fiction. What's your favorite video game? Well, that's an interesting one. I have always been a fan of the Ultima series. I'm not be sure of it. Ultima Four, Ultima Five. I could play those games. They're old games. They came out in the eighties. I could play them again and again forever. Absolutely love those games. All right, is that a fighting first person fighting game? Like it's like arts? a role-playing game okay. role-playing game where you wander around and you know you just like kill monsters to get more treasure to level up that kind of stuff but it's actually okay. a really cool kind of background history and it eventually evolved into something called ultima online which became like a big multiplayer uh role-playing game that people played online but that whole universe just love it i think i still have the 1985 ultima 4 map that came with the the disc somewhere in my house and world of warcraft your thoughts uh, I, I used to play it. I, I like it a lot. I'm a big role-playing guy. I think I've kind of hinted that away. But so those are great games for NPC acts because we talked about the metaverse, but we could easily just start creating characters that are that are doing various things in that game modeled on real-world people. So again, you could clone yourself. You could clone the barista. The other thing you could do is you could clone people of different skill levels. I think the one thing when people think about AI, right? Nowadays, they think of Go champions, chess champions, that most, most of these companies are trying to create these godlike AIs that kind of just, you know, you just, they're the chess masters. That's not what NPCX is, right? NPCX is repeating, cloning, building reality into the video games. So for a game like World of Warcraft, it'd, it'd be, you know, perfect application of our tech. How do we find out more follow online, Michael? Well, so uh, NPCX.ai. Uh, the company's NPCX. You can find more information there. We're pretty active on LinkedIn. I got to say, we're amazing at tech, probably not so good at marketing, something we need to do better at. Uh, I just opened uh, my own personal Twitter account. If anyone wants to follow me, it's Michael A. Pushkar, P-U-S-C-A-R. Uh, hear my ADHD insights. You're welcome to join me <laughs> in my brain. And uh, if uh, we, we're going to be... Um, Hopefully, we have a YouTube channel, um, so just try to find NPCX on, on YouTube, because one thing about this tech, it shows really nicely. Michael, amazing stuff, and I can't wait to see what you do. Thank you very much. It's really a pri- privilege and an honor, and, I, and, and me too. I am really excited to see what the future holds, not just for us, but for all of us. We'll be right back in just a second to talk about the right fit in just a second. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a 
loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so much for being with us today. Very excited to introduce another great guest. Please welcome Andre Martin to the show. He has had a very successful career working with some of the biggest companies out there, uh, Nike, Mars, and, of course, my favorite, Disney. He is author of a brand-new book called Wrong Fit, Right Fit, just published about uh four or five months ago, and it already has a whole bunch of five-star ratings on that Amazon place, uh, 35 five-star ratings. Pretty impressive. Andre, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, thank you. It's really good to be here. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am well today. Thank you. Tell us about the book, Wrong Fit, Right Fit, why how we work matters more than ever. How we work. Does that mean efficient? Does that mean happily? What do you mean? I think it just really means that every company has a super specific way they like to do work from how they set strategy to how they collaborate, socialize ideas, develop people, give feedback, their relationship with time, all of those factors that make up a random morning in December. And the book really points the idea that, hey, maybe the conversation isn't really about good or bad culture, toxic or engaging environments. Maybe it's really just about how well do I fit the way that your company likes to work. And when I do, what we know is we see higher engagement, higher productivity, more creativity, greater levels of innovation, and overall more satisfaction at work. Are you implying something more than just culture? Uh, It sounds like you're going for more than that. I am. I'm trying to separate and really maybe add a little bit more specificity about this big gnarly word word called culture, right? Because culture can mean a lot of different things. And and in the book and in my conversations with over 100 talent around the world, what I found is that satisfaction at work boils down to how the company works day to day. All the little things that happen in terms of how we get work done. And when it fits, it feels like you're riding with your dominant hand. And when it doesn't, it feels like you're riding with your non-dominant hand. It's stressful. It's frustrating. You lose confidence. Your quality goes down. And overall, you're left in a place that kind of has you bankrupt. And so is that how your immediate supervisor treats you and how many calls a week they have and how much they monitor your work? My wife just had a job and they had... 10 meetings a week to talk about how product, uh, how productivity was going, how efficient they were, how that last call went. Let's monitor some of that last call. It was a night. They were, they were down her throat nonstop. Hey, here's what I can tell you is that right now work is a lot harder than it should be. Gallup just shared a piece of data that stays with me that $8.8 trillion of lost productivity is in our global companies due to disengagement. The the T word? That's the T word. So estimated $8.8 trillion of lost productivity due to disengagement. So right now work is hard and there's a variety of reasons why. I think what the book sort of points to is often we are thinking about culture in terms of, do we have the same values? You know, do I appreciate and like the the purpose of your company? And it's really much more granular about than that. It could be how your 
manager treats you or really the way your manager likes to get work done. They like to stand over your shoulder, have a bunch of meetings. They like you to socialize ideas through two-page memos or, or long thought papers, but it's really all those principles, practices, and platforms we use to get work done. And when you're working in a way that makes sense to you, it's easy. It flows. All your creative energy goes to your craft. When it doesn't, you end up putting your creative energy into context or figuring out how work gets done. And then you just lose productivity. And in the end, you're left disengaged, which is why I think that number is where it is. Andre, let me tell you a quick little story. Actually, I want to tell two stories because I think they're just one of them is great and the other one's relevant. How about that? The great awesome. one is I was, oh gosh, in college and wanted an internship to, you know, do the resume pump and yep. reached out to the man that invented Diet Coke. He was the chemist that put the formula together for Diet Coke very high up at Coke. And at that time he was the keeper of the formula, the man that had the original recipe and was the only Coke person that had 24 uh, seven protection and hmm. reached out to him, know, knew him through my parents, just lucky coincidence and asked for a job at Coke for the summer internship. And he was like, I, I think I can help you out. I'll give you a call back. And an hour later he called back and said, you got a job. Uh, be at this address, uh, wear a t-shirt and shorts and work boots. Uh, you're going to be working on the loading dock, no air conditioning, Atlanta summer. Uh, congratulations. I hope you like your job. And without thinking, Andre, thank God. I said, sir, thank you so much. I love it. I can't wait. <laughs> and he called back an hour later and said, oh, by the way, I just found you another job on the 37th floor in the international legal department, would you rather do that? And I will, I will hell yeah, I want that. That sounds a lot better. You know, I want to be uh, a CEO track. I don't want to work in the loading dock. And he sure. said, okay, you got that. And through the pipeline, I heard, you know, through the mother and the friend and all that kind of stuff, that the whole first job was a test, that that job didn't mm. exist that he was just telling me that to see what I said. And if I had pushed back, I wouldn't have gotten anything. But the fact that I was very excited about it, then he went to bat for me and found me something interesting. So anyway, there's my little great story. I think is really just educational for life type story. You know, the I, hey, I love, oh, go, go ahead. Go yep. ahead. No, I should say, I love this. I love the story. And, and I think what I love most about it is, Hey, what we, don't realize about sort of finding the right fit company or the right fit job is often those interviews are super informative. I mean, you think about it, they're like first dates. They're a chance for you to get to know the company. There's a chance for the company to get to know you. And one of the things we have to do, and I think your story is a great example of, we have to ask questions that get below the surface so we get to know the person that's in front of us or the company that's in front of us. And that's something that's not happening every day. So I think you were lucky. So then the relevant story is I got the job, was working on the 37th floor doing international legal. They gave me this big project all summer long and I started working and I had to pump through the supervisor who was, you know, a 35 year old. And he also reported to the same boss I did, you know, kind of a snooty 45 year old and, 
about a day or so in, he came up to me. He was like, dude, slow down, slow down. You're going too fast. Slow down. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're, you're being too efficient. You know, just slow down. And then I kind of spent a week or so, you know, internalizing that and looked around and noticed that everyone worked ridiculously slowly. And wow. that was the way it was, you know, and that's what they expected. So my question sort of having rambled all of that, Andre, how does one micro relationship with my snooty boss then become 2000, 20,000 snooty relationships with every single boss at Coca-Cola? They all work that way. How does the micro become the macro so very effectively? Does that make sense? Am I on the right track here? You're on the right track. Here's what I would say to you is this, that that when you think about a way a company works, whether it's Coke or some of the places I work, Google or Nike or Target or Mars, they all have a very different rhythm, flow, and approach to getting work done. Just like you said, hey, Coke in the old days was, we like to work slow. Don't try to be too efficient or too fast. Like that's the nature of how work gets done. You might go to you know, a place like Nike and work moves really fast. And, you know, you can go to a place like Mars and, you know, work is done via people with not a lot of process. And so I think if we step back and just say, hey, the truth of the matter is every one of these companies has a fundamental different approach to work. The more you can find out about that before you go to the job, the more you can be clear about how you like to work the better chance you have in landing in a place where instead of you being reprimanded for working too fast, you might've been better off another company that appreciated speed, that appreciated efficiency. Then you're going to be in a place where you're working at your optimal pace, at your optimal level in your optimal way. And that's really what the book does. The book has a couple of components. One is it says, Hey, before you go search for a new job, why don't you step back, take a deep breath, and really do some self-reflection about what you're solving for, how you like to work, the kind of leader you like to work for, and what kind of career you're building. And if you're on the other side of the fence and you're a company trying to get talent to come your way, we got to get really clear about how work gets done because all the time I see talent in the interviews, we talk that they're constantly bumping into the culture. They're having to figure out how to be a success because no one stops, sets them down and says, hey, here's the way work happens here. Number one was reflect. Did I miss number two? Uh, no, no, I mean, number two was really just that sense of then being able to, to get in the interview process okay, okay. And, and dig in and find out, does the company really fit you? I'm one of those people that if you tell me about number one and number two and number three, and then don't give me number three, I get, I get lost. You know, I got to have number three. I love that. Uh, is this the, the world of glass door then is glass door, the best solution to this Andre? I think there's a couple solutions, right? Beyond just doing the self-reflection, finding out what you're solving for, there's some really interesting questions that you can ask in an interview to really get at the next level of depth below the surface to understand what's really the day-to-day -day experience is going to be like. Um, those can include things like, tell me about the person that, that succeeds there. Uh, what's the success profile? It can be, talk to me about 
a day in the life. Take me through your calendar and tell me how work gets done. It could be asking someone inside the company that maybe isn't on the team. What's the reputation of the team and my manager? You know, how do they, how do they get the most out of their employees? One of the best strategies I have though, is to say, Hey, the interview is part marketing, right? Really it's everybody being on their best behavior. You're coming in with your most polished resume. The company's coming in saying, look at how great we are, all the perks we provide you. And that can be hard to make a, a good decision. So my advice is go out to your network on LinkedIn Find a person who worked at the company you're interviewing at for at least three years so they had a really deep knowledge of how it worked and find and make sure that they have just recently left. If you find the person who recently left and worked there for a long time, I would interview them. I would talk to them about the reality of what it's like to work there, about how work gets done, because you're going to get a more realistic viewpoint. The job review sites are great. But they're often disgruntled employees, right? They're often people who are are upset or have an axe to grind with the company. So, you know, it's hard to comb through those and find real valid, realistic data. But they are another external resource that I would point to and, and take a look at for sure when you're looking for a job. Because here's the deal, right, is I'm looking at data that tells me 30% of new joiners leave their new job within three months, citing a mismatch of expectations. 52% that stay six months are still looking for another job. 40% of adults in the workplace feel isolated and 75% of us have the Sunday scaries. Like we're just not finding places that are either valuing us or that fit us in, in the right ways. But when you get it right, man, I just hear story after story of how great that can be for your career. Let's switch, Andre. We are a show for the owner right? Mm -hmm. We are the entrepreneurs listening here. How as the interviewer do I bring in the right fit? How do I give away the right amount of information to attract the right person? So I want a, a two-part question. How do I sell it and how do I make sure I'm selling it to the right person? I think the first thing I would do is, hey, the easiest way to get the right person for your company is to be honest about who you are and how you, how you get work done. You know, one of the things that I would love to see companies do is to get away from these really poetic, really beautiful, really aspirational versions of, of their career websites. At some point, the person that's getting ready to come to your company is going to need to know the truth about how it feels to work there. You can tell them it's getting better. You can tell them, you know, that we're working on every day. But if we don't give them the realistic view, they're going to get to the first day on the job or the second day, and they're going to feel like they just landed on Mars. And what I was finding in the interviews is there's like three versions of a company. There's the company I'm recruited into, which is aspiration and beautiful and the best place to work on earth. There's the company I come in and do my onboarding in those first couple of days, and I get to meet the best leaders. It's a little bit more realistic. I get to hear the best product stories. And then I land in my job and it feels like an entirely different company. And I think we have to fix that, right? So the first thing I would say to leaders is just be honest. There's plenty of talent out there in the world. And the ones that are that like your brand of crazy, your way of working, they're going to come your way. So just be honest because they're going to find out the truth at some point anyway. I think secondly is let's start writing realistic job previews. Instead of having these big, all-encompassing job descriptions that describe like the next 10 years of all you could do on the job, let's get really clear in those realistic job previews of, hey, here's how we work. 
here's the capability or skills or experiences we're looking for. And here's the next three projects you're going to be doing. Does it sound like fun? If so, apply or come join us. That's the second thing. And I think the third thing is we've got to teach people how our company works. Every time you hire someone from the outside, you not only get their technical skill, you get all the culture that they bring with them from all the other companies, right? Think about a place like Google. When I was there, we hired one year, I think 27,000 people on a base of about 100,000. So we're bringing in about one fourth of the company in a single year. We're getting all that great brilliance, but they're also bringing all their favorite work practices and work principles and the way they collaborate and solve problems and give feedback. And so we become this amalgamation of all these individual preferences of how work gets done. So teach people the system. Build the system first, but then make sure you're teaching people that. And then just re-recruit your people as often as you can because everyone's got their head up. What about in today's world where so many of the businesses, especially the tech businesses that they make movies about, mm-hmm. end up with really messed up cultures of some sort of sexism or sure. too much drinking? Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a tech company. I was very intimately familiar with a uh, experience company that ran experiences in different cities each week. And it was a new city each week. And at the end of the experience, uh, Sunday night, you're getting as drunk as humanly possible because the boss is too right next enforcing it. You know, it's part of the experience. Uh, how do we handle stuff like this? You know, uh, you can end up in a place where you don't feel comfortable pretty quickly. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this issue, Andre? Well, I would start with this is, is one of the things we have to do, especially with anyone who's in a leadership position, is we have to re-recruit them back to what this company is all about. Why is the world better with us in it? What do we value? How do we make money? What are our principles on how we work together? And then what's our promise to our employees? I think part of what happens is we just hire these leaders, right? And we bring them in and say, get to work and build a better product or get to work and build a better marketing campaign or get to work and drive better finance. We don't do the job on teaching them what matters here, what we care about, what the non-negotiables are. This is what we allow and this is what we don't allow. And when we don't do that, we basically are telling them, do whatever you've done before. And if you came from a company where those kind of things were permissible, then you're going to bring them into the next company you come. So the, the first thing I would say is let's make sure we teach everyone the system. Let's make sure we remind them over and over again, all of those things that I just mentioned. And last but not least, if you have a toxic leader, you have someone who isn't representing the culture or the values or the beliefs you hold about how work should get done, you can't hesitate to get them out of your system because they're inherently going to destroy your culture over time. And I think many times we let them stay way too long. You know, we turn a blind eye because they make us a lot of money. We, you know, we turn a blind eye because we, we don't want to have the hard or difficult conversations. And the fact is that those leaders are our reputation. And so as an entrepreneur or founder, I would say, Hey, if you have a leader who is really good at their job, 
but they're creating a toxic environment, don't make that trade-off. Great advice. I love it. Uh, what do we do about the work at home phenomenon? Where do you think we end up? And as a company, what do you think is better? I, no matter what you tell me, no matter what you tell me, I'm never going to believe that people are, uh, more productive, productive at home. They, they maybe become more productive, but they give you fewer hours to compensate and you end up with the same level over time. Maybe you get a bump at first, but over time it, it kind of peters out and then you lose the water cooler effect, the, uh, all of the good benefits of having everyone in the same place, getting to know each other and becoming friends and sleeping with each other and all the good parts, Andre. <laughs> well, that's too funny. Uh, hey, here's what I would say is I feel like we are having the wrong conversation in part because the locations that we work, where we work, that should be the last conversation, not the first, right? So the first thing I would say to you is, Hey, look at how you do work in your company. How do you set strategy, solve problems, manage conflicts, selling ideas, run meetings, drive collaboration, socialize? What's your relationship with time? How do you do all those things first? And by knowing how you work, your operating system for the company, you'll know a lot about how often you need to be in proximity. But here's the deal. No matter what you choose. Right. If you choose to have people in the in the office five days a week or you choose to be fully remote, the fact is everybody, everybody right now has their head up looking around, seeing people that, you know, they're seeing greener grass. They're seeing these folks who are having better experiences. They get more flexibility. They have more offices. This is what social media and the Internet has done to us is they're driving down our commitment to our companies. We are all distracted. We all have FOMO. We're all infinitely browsing for something better. And so no matter what you choose about location, I would say this. Make sure that you are continually reminding your employees, one, that they're valued. Secondly, that you see them in their good work. And third, that you are trying to create the best place possible for them to work. And if you're choosing to go remote, the danger is this. I think you're right that over time, I think we lose a little bit of productivity because we lose commitment, right? Every one of the conversations we have on a screen, they're driven by a task. We're trying to get something done. And that was the beauty of being in the office. We had these moments in between, right? These storytelling sessions or these cups of coffee or these, you know, little impromptu social gatherings that connected to each, us to each other. They gave us belonging. They gave us best friends at work. They gave us mentors. And, and so in that regard, I think if you're going remote or you're going to do hybrid, we have to find better ways to do that same thing in a different way, because that's what's missing, right? Is it's not about being at home or in the office. It's how much time are people spending in between getting more commitment and feeling more affinity and belonging in the company that they work in. If you're remote, it's much harder. And I don't see anybody doing that really well. I don't either. And the companies that are forcing people back are making enemies. And That's I right. think the, for, the companies that are letting people do whatever they want are going to regret it and uh, almost look like chumps. 
to me at some level. Um, so I don't know. I love, that's why I love being an entrepreneur. It doesn't right. matter. We can do whatever we want and <laughs> build the company for, in that way. So, yeah. And even for entrepreneurs, I mean, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs now that struggle with culture, right? Because when you're a company of, let's say you have, it's me, you, and two of our best friends are working together. There's just four of us. Let's say we add another four people as we grow the company. Those four people now have an equal share in building our culture. And so it happens really quick to founders where all of a sudden they wake up one day, they go from 20 employees to 150 and they're like, this doesn't feel like the company I want to run anymore. And it's because when you're an entrepreneur, you know this as well as I do, you're working in the business every day. You're putting out fires, you're spinning plates, you're doing all those kinds of things. And you're not paying enough attention to who's coming in your door, whether or not they believe in the same things that you believe in, whether or not they work in the same ways that you work. And so you wake up one day, lift your head from all the chaos of being an entrepreneur, and you're like, wow, we're 100 people and I don't recognize the place. And so my, you know, my biggest advice to entrepreneurs is when you hire those first few employees, trade off a little on technical skill to make sure you get somebody that you could see yourself working with for 20 years that Andre, you believe represent the way that you want work to get done. Andre, how do we find out more? Follow you online, get a copy of the book. Yes, sir. You can follow me at my website. It's www.wrongfitrightfit.com. I also run a weekly newsletter that's meant to be your first cup of coffee in the morning or tea. It gives you practical advice on how to make this week the best week ever at work. And that's mondaymatters.substack.com. Fantastic. Andre, great. Thank you so much for being with us and happy holidays. And I hope you sell a lot of books. Right hey, I appreciate that. it. Yeah, let's let's get those under the under the tree and wrapped up as presents for people. And oh, yeah, uh, I wish you happy holidays as well. You know, I have two adult age kids now, and I do try to give them a business book every year for Christmas. Um, well, let's make it wrong fit, right fit. Yes, Andre. Thanks a lot for being with us. Great stuff. Take care now. Bye. We're out of time, but you know what we do? That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go make a million dollars. Bye now.